My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. The movies are finally born as we welcome Edison and Dixon to the stage in this, the third episode of the history of film. In the third episode of the History of Film, we left off with French researcher Antoine Jules Moet inventing his chronophotographic gun, which would use a series of glass plates and later strips of photosensitive paper to take pictures in quick succession. And it is here that we must begin again, as something very important for the history of film is about to happen. Film or at least film as we know it. Remember the chronophotographic gun, because we have to talk about some other historically important innovations for a while. But we will return. For now, though, we must meet George Eastman. George Eastman was a New York-born businessman and entrepreneur who worked with a man named William H. Walker to develop a way of replacing the photographic imaging technology of the day with something that would be simpler and more convenient. What they came up with was putting a photosensitive paper on a roll. This roll would simplify the photography process, making it more accessible and easier for untrained photographers to use cameras. Eastman and Walker would later further innovate on roll photography by putting light-sensitive silver emulsion on a relatively new substance called celluloid. Celluloid was invented in the mid-19th century in England and represents a landmark in technological history. Celluloid was the first artificially produced plastic ever made. This then new material was made by taking the cellulose of certain trees and mixing it with other naturally occurring ingredients to produce a gum-like substance that could be hardened into virtually any shape. Celluloid became popular for creating luxury goods, including chess pieces, billiard balls, jewelry, and combs, which would normally be made out of much more expensive materials such as ivory or tortoiseshell. The material did come with its downsides. It was extremely flammable, with some horror stories including women's jewelry bursting into flame on a hot day, or billiard balls practically exploding when they hit against each other. Celluloid also discolors and breaks down over time, making preservation difficult. But the value of having a moldable material made an enormous impact, despite its downsides. When entrepreneurs began producing the material in the United States, it received its patented name, celluloid, which would quickly become the generic name for the material. In the 1880s, new discoveries made it possible to make celluloid clear and to make it into a bendable film. This would make it usable for Eastman's camera, replacing paper rolls. The advantages of using celluloid film for photography compared to paper rolls were several but the most important one is its durability. 
I feel confident that most everybody listening to this has felt the comparative durability of plastic and paper of the same thickness, and for most people, celluloid's flammable nature wasn't a huge issue. As for how it relates to film history, the most important advantage for celluloid film was its ability to be made transparent. Images developed on transparent celluloid could have the ability to be backlit and eventually projected, though we won't be talking about that until we cover the Lumiere brothers. This would facilitate their use for film viewership in a way that would be impossible using paper film strips. Now that the celluloid film strip was here, it became much more accessible for photography to begin in earnest among the public. In 1888, Eastman's company released their first paper film camera for non-professional use, called the Kodak One, which is still familiar to this day. With a design that was simple enough for almost anyone to understand, and a price tag that was within the means of the 90,000 Americans who would end up buying one, it cost $25 for a preloaded camera and $10 for photo development with a new roll of film installed after sending it in. The Kodak One caused an explosion in amateur photography. It also did this with celluloid production. As Eastman's company switched to the new celluloid film before the end of the decade, the needs of the market meant that the mechanisms for producing lots and lots of celluloid film would be in place. This was good, because very soon another important buyer would be needing a lot of it. And then, so would a whole industry. Which one is the Liberté? Oh, the one on the right. Are you sure? You mustn't take the wrong boat. I'll try not to. You haven't forgotten my instructions, have you? Never an umbrella in Paris, and under all circumstances, rain the very first day. I haven't forgotten a word, Sabrina. My sister has a yellow pencil. Ma soeur a un crayon jaune. Very good. Très bien. Watch. One, two, three. Crack. New egg. It's all in the wrist. Now we get to circle back to our old friend Murray. Murray piggybacked on the Kodak One's celluloid film strip and adapted his chronophotographic gun to use the new material. Murray engineered a device that would open and close the shutter quickly while moving celluloid film through the machine. The film would stop very briefly for a shutter to open and close, exposing the celluloid film to light. This allowed Murray to make much more advanced motion studies, including images I've put on the show's website, thehistoryoffilmpodcast.com, under the show notes for this episode. Murray crafted a device that was remarkably like the ubiquitous motion picture camera that would soon be the instrument with which movie-making magicians would capture the attention of the world. But he didn't actually make a movie camera. Murray was a researcher, not a businessman or an entertainer. His interest laid in pictures of motion, not motion pictures. But this was not true for the rest of the world. The idea of making movies had blossomed in the heads of inventors across the world who were interested in the motion study technology of the day. This included the most infamous inventor of all time. This is it, everyone. We finally arrived at the moment you've all been expecting for some time. Movies are about to be born, and we're about to meet Thomas Alva Edison. Thank you. 
Thomas Edison was born on 11 February 1847 to a middle-class family in Milan, Idaho in the United States. Edison attended school briefly and sporadically in his youth. This was likely due to his being hard of hearing, a trait in his family, that made the oral instruction common in schools to this day unusually difficult for the young Edison. He instead became a voracious reader. As a young man, Edison became involved with the train and telegraph industries, which would give him essential experience when entering the field that he would become famous for, inventing. With some success in inventing more innovative telegraph machines, Edison decided to pursue a career as an inventor. The life of Thomas Edison is fascinating and complicated, and I may do a supplemental episode on him because he's such a large figure in the history of early cinema, but we can't really do it right now. For one thing, he held more than 1,093 patents before his death and was involved in far too much engineering to cover here before we reach his lab's most important contribution to the birth of cinema and its first baby steps. For now, we will learn about one of Edison's most important inventions, the phonograph, and how that led to the invention of the first motion pictures. After starting a research lab in Menlo Park, New Jersey, Edison began developing a device that would transcribe telephone signals for conversion to telegraphs for delivery, an invention that made a lot of sense before widespread telephone usership. He was experimenting with a stylus to make an impression of sound that could be decoded later. To his surprise, when the recording medium was dragged under the stylus, a simple reconstruction of the sound played back. For Edison, this was like lightning. After further tinkering, the device that would become known as the phonograph, literally the sound writer, was created. The phonograph would use cylinders of tin foil and later wax to record sound, using the same principles that vinyl record players still use today. The device that came out of Menlo Park would shock the world. Thomas Edison presented a device that could record and recreate sound. It can be difficult to imagine how shocking this new technology was for people living in the 1870s. One French scientist believed that a hidden ventriloquist was making the sound. The recreation of sound had arrived, and with other inventions, like the electric light soon ascribed to Edison in his lab, he began to wear the title The Wizard of Menlo Park. Edison had gained celebrity status by the time he decided to enter the field of motion pictures in 1888. He was interested in developing a means of visual accompaniment to his phonograph. The business model for making money on the sound replaying miracle machine involved coin-operated personal listening experiences in corner stores and eventually large phonograph parlors. In these places, people could pay a nickel to listen to music of their choice for two minutes, an amount of time and with audio fidelity that would seem comical by today's standards. Still, I cannot stress how remarkable this was for people. You can practically see the dollar signs flashing in Edison's eyes as he imagined how much people would be willing to pay for seeing people make the sounds that he was selling. Imagine being able to hear Henry V give his St. Crispin's Day speech while seeing the finest actor of the day give the performance, or watching the musician play their tune. The idea was too much for Edison to resist. The Wizard of Menlo Park was preparing ingredients for another spell. Or at least his company was. By 1888, Edison wasn't the proper inventor that he once was. He'd taken a role of managing the business of his great industrial research lab, allowing for the production of many more inventions at once, while maximizing revenue for the lab and himself. 
It was in this role that Edison tapped researcher William K. L. Dixon to be the principal developer for the motion picture camera that would soon come out of the Menlo Park lab. Mr. Vaughn, what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks, and that's all. Now, why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. The life of William Kennedy Laurie Dixon is a dark and shadowy thing, at least compared to many of his contemporaries in the history of film. While there have been books written on his life and his contributions, his story is largely overshadowed by his collaborator and employer, Thomas Edison. As such, while our journey with Dixon begins in the Brittany region of France on 3 August 1860, the day of Dixon's birth, it really begins in 1879, when Dixon, now a young man, immigrated to the United States. When our man Dixon entered the employ of Edison soon thereafter, one of the most important partnerships in early film history was formed. In the year 1884, now with a worker capable of doing the job, the sorcerer of Menlo Park made his move. Task in hand, Dixon began trying to recreate movement in much the same way Edison had developed his device for recreating sound. In what seems comical by today's standards, Dixon spent a year trying to recreate images by printing them microscopically on a cylinder which would then spin to make the persistence of vision effect we talked about in episode 1 possible. For an amazing amount of reasons, the whole cylinder thing didn't work out, but a new avenue would soon open up. In 1889, Edison went to Paris and visited Marais, and observed the chronophotographic gun. Edison bore witness to the awesome mechanism that Marais had created, and brought back with him the key advancement that would make motion pictures possible. Moray's system for moving celluloid strips. As soon as Edison got back to the United States, he contacted Eastman and began to purchase film. Now with an example to lead him, Dixon would make progress on the venture that would evolve in today's cinematic experience. Or at least, he soon would. The Edison labs were a very busy place, and so the actual inventing of the motion picture wouldn't take place for another two years, in 1891. It was that year that Dixon and Edison would reveal their twin inventions to the world, the kinetoscope and the kinetograph. At this point, I'd like to stop and make a quick aside about Thomas Edison. If you've read film history written even relatively recently, you'll have come across the idea that Edison didn't really invent the kinetoscope or the kinetograph, which is absolutely true. He, of course, hired Dixon to do it, and even Dixon's work was based off of Murray's chronophotographic gun. In the recurring theme of this show, human effort is collaborative, though in this case, like so many, the lion's share of the financial benefit for the invention did not go to the inventor or the inventors themselves. Edison has a place in film history, a huge one, one that's actually only going to get bigger in the next few episodes, but he did not properly invent the movie camera. 
Like a kinetoscope, the history of film has a lot of moving parts and a lot of things to understand, including all of the people who participated in it that didn't get into every elementary school textbook. Perhaps you can help me. Perhaps you can help me find some clothes. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> Must be some of Mark's things around. Some and and the Smith. Are there? Well, uh, well, uh, oh, yes, there are some in Mr. Mark's room, sir. Yes, sir. Which is Mr. Mark's room? Well, it's the end, sir. Yes, Thank you. Thank you. The Edison-Dixon-developed kinetograph was a machine that used sprockets and an electric motor to move a strip of film with individual photosensitive frames to a shutter. The shutter would open and close to expose one frame of film for a brief moment. The celluloid film itself was moved by gears and sprockets, which would time the film just right for exposure. In essence, the kinetograph works much the same way that film video cameras do to this very day. When kinetograph production went into full swing, it would use 50-foot rolls provided by Edison's friends at the Eastman Kodak Company. The camera could capture between 20 and 50 seconds of continuing motion, depending on the rate at which the frames pass through the camera shutter. This early motion picture camera was the first major success in bringing motion pictures to the public. Just as vibrations in the air could be recorded and reproduced, now human beings could read a record of light that had touched a particular time and place for the first time. If the kinetograph recording device seems familiar to modern film enthusiasts, the way of viewing that film is not. Edison imagined that people would want to experience motion pictures in the same way they wanted to use photographs, alone, one at a time. As such, the kinetoscope was a peep show, a large box with two viewing wheels that would allow the customer to insert a coin and watch a few moments of footage flicker before their eyes in silver tones. Movies were at last born. The first kinetoscope parlor opened in New York on 14 April 1894, containing five machines that could be viewed for five cents apiece. Before long, kinetoscope parlors would be opening up across the United States. Next week, we will talk about how and where the movies were made, and what kinds of films were being produced, and the limitations of the kinetoscope. We will also set the stage for further innovators, including the French masters of early film, the Lumiere brothers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of Film podcast. If you want to support the show, you can do so by telling your friends about it and leaving a review wherever you listen. It helps us grow, and helping more people understand film history and how it relates to all of our lives is the primary mission of this program. To view resources that will help with understanding what we talked about in today's episode, you can look at the episode notes on historyoffilmpodcast.com. With any comments, questions, or just to say hi, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com.